0: Hey guys, welcome to Upbeat. I'm your host, Parker Kane. Thank you very much for being here and for listening in today. If you would, please follow the podcast wherever it is you're listening to it right now. That is always much appreciated, so thank you for that. Uh, Today's episode is incredible. And actually, I believe this is the first time on Upbeat where I've done back-to-back part one and part two episodes because there's just so much that we talked about that was so valuable. And this interview just has... Uh, It's filled with a lot of remarkable stories and amazing insight from Jeff Meyer, who's been on the podcast before, and also Chris Helwick. Chris is a decathlete of USA track and field and an Olympic hopeful for 2021. Uh, He graduated from the University of Tennessee as a seven-time NCAA All-American, three-time SCC champion, and University of Tennessee record holder for the indoor heptathlon. Chris is also a Pan-American champion, and he actually did go to the Olympic trials in 2008, where he placed seventh, and 2012, where he placed fifth. Uh, just a couple of spots shy from the top three, which is what he needed to move forward in the Olympics. So in 2012, he retired. And long story short, which we'll cover more in depth in these episodes, he's back again, going for the Olympics, but with a whole new perspective. And what's awesome about these two episodes, what's awesome about this interview, is we get to hear his perspective being from himself, from the athlete. Uh, But we also get to hear from someone he works with, Jeff Meyer, about the brain and about the mental game, which is fascinating. Uh, to stay up to date with Chris's journey, uh, you can see what he's up to at chrishelwick.com. That's chris, H-E-L-W-I-C-K.com. Also, I believe Jeff will be releasing a new book soon, The School of Flow, where uh, he'll share with us the same kind of information he teaches the athletes that he works with, including Chris Helwick. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, but for all the details about all these things and anything we talk about throughout the episode, you can go to my website, parkercane.co, Thanks, guys. Without further ado, let's get into it. I am beyond thrilled, uh, you guys, for this episode. We're joined by Chris Helwick. Uh, he is a professional decathlete. He's an Olympic hopeful for the upcoming Olympics. Very, very accomplished in the space of track and field. Uh, and we're also joined by Jeff Meyer, who uh, I guess is a mentor to Chris as far as the mind game is concerned. And he's also a good friend of mine and no stranger to this podcast. <laughs> uh, Jeff has been on two times before, episode 21 and 49. In the first one, we talked a lot about brain power. And in the second one, we talked a lot about uh, how powerful our hearts are. So uh, both both of those very, very good. Go check them out. But this episode is going to be very powerful Uh, We're talking about two sides of the coin here, so to speak, Uh, both sides of training for the Olympics. Uh, Chris, of course, being the athlete and a physical expert. Specimen. (laughs) Specimen. (laughs) Uh, And Jeff being the brains and helping out with some brain power and mental performance. So Chris, Jeff, thank you very much for being on Upbeat. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Likewise. We have a lot that we could uh, pack into this episode, uh, and I definitely want to get into everything we can here, but I always start with story. So Chris, if you don't mind, could you just briefly share with us a little bit about you? Like catch the listeners up, give us a quick summary of your journey, and tell us more about how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, sure. Sure. So uh, Jeff and I are from a town in Northern Colorado called Greeley, Uh, but that's where I was born and raised, spent the first 18 years of my life there. And when I was 18, um, I moved to Knoxville, Tennessee to go to college. I went to the University of Tennessee for four years. I really got my start in decathlon when I was 17 and in high school. And it was really my high school track coach who got me into it. I'd actually been running track since I was nine, um, just like summer summer track programs, real recreational type thing. But when I got into high school, I got a little more serious about it. And I remember my coach came up to me one day i'd been I'd been kind of expanding my my breadth of of events, um, trying new things, you know expanding into um, relays and hurdles and long jump and things like that. And I remember my high school track coach his name was Marty. He came up to me one day. He's like, Chris, you know, the way you're catching on to these new events and picking up the technique, I think you might have the potential to be a really great decathlete. And I said, wow, that's, that's awesome. Coach, what's a decathlete? <laughs> no idea. i I'd been running track since I was nine and I, I was shocked that there was a track and field event I'd never heard of before, but Marty was a decathlete himself. And so he was always looking out for talent and uh, he, he spotted that in me, and he was really the person who ushered me into the decathlon and, and got me started on it. Went to Tennessee, had, had a really great four years at Tennessee. I was coached by a man named Bill Webb. Uh, we had a lot of success together. At the end of my college career, I was, um, I was a seven-time All-American. I was a three-time SEC champion. I, I was runner-up at the National meet twice. I had broken a school record in the indoor decathlon. Um, so I, I, just, I just had an amazing experience at that school. I could, I could go on about it. But my experience at Tennessee <clears throat> left me very fulfilled in, in, in a big way. I just, I just felt like I had a very rich experience there. But at the same time, it left me wanting more. When I got to the end of my senior year, I felt like I hadn't quite reached my full potential in the events. Um, and I knew that there was this whole you know, sphere of competition, you know, the post-collegiate world of track and field where people go to make world championship and Olympic teams. And, and I really wanted to, to dive into that. I wanted to see what that was all about. So for, uh, for five years after college, I devoted my life to training for and competing in decathlons. I always had part-time jobs I was a volunteer assistant coach at Wake Forest during this time, but my my whole life centered around decathlon, and so that's what I did until the age of 27. I I retired from decathlon and athletics as a whole when I was 27. Uh, My final meets, my final decathlon of that career uh, was the 2012 Olympic trials. I I finished fifth in in that meet. Um, you got to be in the top three to go to the Olympics, so that was the closest that I'd ever come to making the team. But um, alas, it wasn't meant to be. And that was also a pretty memorable meet because it was it was when Ashton Eaton broke the world record in the decathlon for the first time. So that that was it was it was just a very uh, sort of iconic meet to be going out on. But so when I was twenty seven, I retired. Um, frankly, I was ready to be done. I was pretty burnt out at that time, to be honest with you. Um, I'd, been, I'd been grinding at decathlon for 11 years straight since I was 17. I mean, it was really the focus of my life for that whole time. By, by the end of it, I was just ready to be done. I was ready to experience new things. Um, I was ready to grow in new ways. Um, I was ready to see what life beyond athletics was all about. It was, it was a world I'd, I'd never experienced before. So the years following my retirement were, were very interesting. Um, you know, we can probably dive into some of this a little bit later, but it was a very difficult time, right? At first, um, there was a lot of, there were growing pains when you move into a whole new life, a whole new world. Um, athletics had been at the center of my world, the center of my identity for a long, long time. and So when that abruptly ended, it was, it was pretty jarring to to have to kind of recreate yourself but over time um it got better and over time i reflected pretty deeply on my experiences as an athlete as a decathlete you know in a sentence i rekindled my love of being an athlete which frankly i had lost in my later years of competing Um, i got a little too focused on on the accomplishments and not enough and not have enough appreciation for the process. And, and over time, I came to realize these things. And I had some pretty striking experiences that ultimately persuaded me that I needed to come back to the world of elite level track and field. I needed to come back to this sport, this event that I had left and show that it could be done in a better way. Through my time away from decathlon, through my reflections, I I realized some of my biggest pitfalls that I made when I was younger, both physically and mentally. And so now um, I, I restarted my my athletic career in 2019. Competed in 2019. You know, we all know the story of 2020, and then I'll be competing for one final year in 2021 to first go to the Olympic trials in Eugene and then on to the Olympic games in Tokyo. Um, but this, this career of mine, the second career, I call myself a born again athlete and it's, it's all about having these incredible realizations about how amazing being an athlete is and how we so often lose sight of what is so intrinsically valuable about it. And we start thinking about the, all these external elements of competition. So this is this this is all this is a very rare second chance to try to do things right.
0: Awesome. Well thanks for sharing all of that. That's an incredible journey. Um before we get too into it, I do want to just for those who are listening uh who might not know, can we just cover some terms real quick, like what exactly is a decathlon or a heptathlon? What are these sports and competitions that you're so involved in? Could you just break it down for us?
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, m- maybe you should have done that a little bit earlier. <laughs> um, So, you know, as, as I alluded a, a decathlon is a track and field event. And it's really 10 track and field events rolled into one. So what happens is um, you compete in 10 events over the course of two days, five events each day, always in the same order. And that order is the 100 meter dash, the long jump, the shot put, high jump, 400. Come back on day two and run the 110 meter high hurdles, the discus, pole vault, javelin, 1500. What happens is you get, you get points in each of these events. You're awarded a certain number of points based on your performance in each event. And then you tally all your points up at the end for a total score of around eight thousand, and so the winner is the guy with with the most points.
0: Crazy! I love that they save what I would assume is the hardest for last
1: <laughs> in that event. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's it's brutal. It's brutal running, you know, basically a mile at the end of two days of, of competition like that. But uh, there's there's really nowhere else to put it. If you did it earlier, it kind of wreck you for the rest of the events.
0: Awesome. Well, what is it? I guess about this space then that originally you were super passionate about and then kind of bringing it to more current times what is it still to this day that's continuing to fuel you to keep chasing after that
1: yeah yeah so it's it's really the exact same thing and and this is what's so funny about it is so when I was a little kid I was I was nine years old this super skinny um toothpick legs like that was my it was almost the nickname for me just running around having a great time at track practice at, at competition I was my thing when I was young is I like to run the mile and I like to high jump kind of two um un, 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 an uncommon pair but that's what I did so anyways when you're a kid you just love doing it <clears throat> like it's it's fun to win and you're trying to win of course but you know getting a blue ribbon at your citywide track meet on a Saturday isn't what you're you're living for. You're out there to have <laughs> fun and like move around and be with your friends. And so when I was young and, and really, you know, well up through high school, that was my that was my mentality. That was my ML. Funny thing is when, when you start moving up the ranks of anything, um, but especially athletic competition, the status and recognition that you receive from doing well becomes greater and greater it becomes more alluring and more alluring until you're finally knocking on the door of the Olympics, which is the pinnacle of, of track and field. And that, that golden goody is really hard to ignore. And so what happened for me is I, I lost sight of what was so intrinsically enjoyable about being an athlete, just being athletic like a I really do. I love movement. I love using my body in very precise, powerful ways and track is just a great um, platform for that. so that's what that's what that's where it started when I was young. and then as time went on, i I, I really lost touch with that i didn't I didn't realize how essential it was um, for for success. And so when I left the sport of track and field at twenty seven I was all wrapped up in And, you know, what I was or wasn't accomplishing. And uh, I just sort of ignored what was the sort of day-to-day joy that I could have been experiencing. And then the years following my retirement, I I eventually came back to the understanding that the experiential joy of athletics is the engine that drives any great performance. And that's the only way that it can be.
0: I love that. And that's really relatable to anyone in any career in the sense of if you are doing what you enjoy doing that should be a really good engine to keep you going is is the fact that you love it you know uh, but we appreciate the breakdown this gives us a really good kind of idea of of who you are what you're up to uh, and I want to I want to bring Jeff in here too but let's talk challenges now like I know that's not the prettiest thing to talk about, but what have some of the hardest things been in pursuing this, um, whether it's injuries or depression or struggles in your mind, like when it comes to performance and failures, like, could you expand on some of that and Jeff, feel free to to hop in here as well.
1: Yeah, maybe I'll, so there's, there's lots of things that I could say. There are, there are many, many challenges and like you, you named some of the biggest ones. Um, but I, I I will. Kick it off with with one thing in particular that I think Jeff um, could could add a lot to is that the things that I'm describing, so like losing touch with the understanding that just being athletic is the prize, rather than you know the gold medal or whatever it might be. It's just because I I had these epiphanies and I realized where I'd gone wrong before and where I need to to go instead never makes it easy. It is always, always a challenge to value experience over say external recognition and and status and and things like that. So it's, you know, one thing for me is that it's always a challenge to, you know, as I said, value the process of what I'm doing. the training, the preparation, value that day to day, get lost in the doing of practice. Like Just start throwing discus and by, you know, the next thing you know, an hour's passed because you know, you're just lost in the activity instead of worrying about, gosh, is this, is this good enough for my next needs? You know, am I going to score high enough to qualify for the Olympics or, or, or win the medal, whatever it may be? Um, it's, it's, it's always a challenge.
0: Yeah, kind of what I heard there too, what's resonating with me is whether you're someone who's just getting started or whether you're the Olympic athlete, you know, obviously different levels, but it's still a hard choice to make. Like you still have to get up and go do, you know, and that's something I guess we can't ever get rid of. We we just always have that choice. You know,
2: one thing that I've realized, you know, working with Chris is he the process is really important to him, and you know we talk about flow state, and he actually just talked about it. You know, he he just said, you know, you start throwing the shot put, and the next thing you know, five what seemed like five minutes is an hour now. And there's the kind of the godfather of flow. His name is Mihai Chikset Mihai, and he's Hungarian, and he studied flow state for forty years, and kind of the word that describes, he, he, he has a word that he says is autotelic, which means the gift is, is in the doing, not a reward or anything. It's, it's the, and that's what Chris is exactly saying. It's like, I love to move. And so that's the gift. That's, that's, I, I love that. So that's autotelic. And so we have these certain triggers to get into flow state. There's, they've studied up to 22 of them and how we can get, and any kind of endeavor, if you're in flow state, you're better. And I just read a big study the other day that just said these, these neuroscientists said that they believe every championship is won because the athlete was in flow state more than any other athlete or the team or whatever. And so Chris has been I Chris is a very cerebral athlete. He thinks through things much differently than I would say the typical athlete. Uh, a typical athlete, they go in and bust out whatever they're supposed to do. The coach says this and they go do it. Where Chris is always thinking of the process and how he can get better and then of course him enjoying it and I just really believe a happy, a grateful athlete is one that's going to perform so much better than a guy that's always striving to get the gold medal. Now, that's not to say that Chris is not trying to do that, but he I think he's understanding more and more that it's this process, this autotelic. And when you learn to get in flow state more, you perform better, period. I mean, it's proven there's 40 years worth of science behind it.
1: One thing I really liked that Jeff said was that the, the challenge was the gift. And, and when you think about challenges, like the best challenges are the ones where it's enjoyable to solve it. And, and the way that, so I mean, to me, this, this has implications for broader society because it's like, all right, your objective is to find a challenge that's enjoyable. Like it shouldn't, you're not trying to find an easy life, you're trying to find a challenging endeavor that you like. And and for me, it's like I love movement riddles. Like that's how I think of them is is a movement riddle. Like, can you make your body do this particular thing? Can you, can you move it in this sequence, in this pattern, in this rhythm? And so like that's that's why I'm good for my work is because I have to spend a heck of a lot of time trying to sort out these many, many movement riddles. And there might be a dozen in, in in each event.
0: I love yeah. that. Go ahead, Jeff.
2: Well, I was just going to say, one th- I think one thing that um, is our society. I mean, our society, we were born to try to be comfortable. I mean, that, that's, at least that's what our society teaches us. And you know, every athlete that I work with, one of my goals is to have them say, I will be comfortable no more because when you're comfortable, you're not growing, period. And so Chris has been great about these challenges, you know, and, you know, it's like in our society, I'm going to work 30 years and what's my goal? Retire. And I'm going to, you know, I'm just as kick back and, but you look at the greatest performers, the greatest athletes, and it can be in anything. It doesn't just need to be an athlete, CEO, you know, anybody. They're the ones that like Chris, and he's such a great model for this is, he loves to chase those challenges, right. And to be uncomfortable, you know, and that's, that's another huge gift because there's not a lot of athletes that will, there's very few athletes that will chase the pain that really want it bad enough to where they'll give up certain things to do it. And so I really believe our society, man, we cripple so many people by saying, man, just be comfortable. You know, just be comfortable. And if you can do crazy, now I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying life and death type stuff, but just challenging yourself every day. And, you know, just one little thing, it it was just about three months ago and it was, it was eight degrees and Chris would be proud of me for this. It was eight degrees um, and it was snowing, and it was four thirty in the morning. I woke up, and I thought, okay, I, I tell all my athletes to not be comfortable. So I got in a t-shirt, my shorts, and shoes, and I went on. I went and ran for two miles. It was eight degrees and snowing, and the wind. And it, I could have stayed in my bed, and it would have felt so nice. But that little challenge, and so. Those little challenges that we each, and we in our lives, we can have all these different little challenges. It makes you better. And so that's the goal, you know, is to to be better. 90% of what we thought yesterday, we think today. How are you ever going to grow if you're thinking 90% in the past? So you have to learn to break those thought processes and think in a different way, and you become a better athlete.
0: Yeah. When we live in a very, uh, it seems mean to say entitled society, but like, I feel like we all just want things now. And I think it's crippling that we all expect shortcuts or expect things to be here right now. And so it's funny, like if you were to just hop into someone random's home and watch the Olympics, they think that is just so unachievable. Like these people are inhuman, you know, for the, for the skill that they're at, because in their, in their minds, it's like, Oh, I could never do that. Like you have to be blessed with a different, a different kind of body or a different kind of talent or whatever. And really all it comes down to is the, the choices you've made and the, and the way you've lived your life and accepting those little challenges all the time. And, one thing that came to mind too, he always comes to my mind, but Gary Vaynerchuk, entrepreneur, CEO, he always talks about more than being a CEO and more than having millions of dollars. He loves the game. He loves the process of creating businesses and making money. And, uh, he always talks about W's and L's wins and losses and how he loves his L's more because it teaches him so much more. And, there's just a whole element of that that I think is fascinating to talk about because most people they just want the wins, they just want the instant gratification, they just want the gold medal. But you got to love something enough to want the losses too and to want the lessons learned.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know what I think about when you say that is um, I think about my own career and like how I how I've learned so much about the mistakes that I made in the past and I, and I Ask myself, like, would you would you go back? Like, knowing what you know now, would you want to go back and do that all over again using the knowledge that you have now? And, and I'm, and I don't think that I would necessarily because I really love what has happened as a result of those mistakes. I mean, I I was in, I felt like I was in a tough spot for a number of years at the tail end of my career. That that was ultimately the the initial cause of me coming back now doing what I'm doing now. So it's like, you can, you can always turn your mistakes into into something more positive down the road.
2: I have a little in my office, I have a little frame picture and I'm looking at it right now. And it says the master has failed more times than the beginner has ever tried. And I look at Chris's career, you're looking at, le- and, 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 and it's not just failing, you know, not, not reaching this goal or the, but can you imagine how many times he's failed in one practice, you know, and, but you get up and you get better and that's how you build that talent in your brain. But, you know, most people just see all the, you know, it's obvious all the limelight and, and things like that, but they don't see the frustration and the hurt and the struggle that these guys put themselves through to get, to that place to be the master where you're you know you're great
0: yeah and let's break that down too like in a in a practice if you're really trying to get somewhere and it's just not happening or if you lost a race or lost an event or maybe even at your 2012 olympic trials when you came in fifth you know Which, by the way, super incredible, but I know you really wanted that top three, you know? So when you have those losses like that, how do you just like shrug them off and not let that be something that pulls you down and turn that into something that's going to make you better?
1: It's a learned skill. It is absolutely learned skill. Recovering from failure and learning from failure, you'll get better at it with more failure. And that that has been at least. The, I mean, that's been my experience. Everything that I that I know tells me that that's pretty universal. So as you're trying to learn how to cope with failure, it's it's hard in the beginning. But as you fail more and more and more, you start to figure out that one, it's not that big a deal. Two, it's inevitable, and everybody does it. And three, there's an incredible amount of information in failures. And so if, you're, if you really are convicted to excel that particular path, you will eventually find just how useful failing is. And I, I really remember a period of time in my life where I, I just kind of suddenly realized that I didn't care about embarrassing myself anymore. And that what I, I would do is I would just figure out, you know, what went wrong, and how to do it differently next time?
2: That's a great gift or a great way to train, because there's so many athletes out there that don't want to be embarrassed. So I I read a story the other day about Wayne Gretzky, and he was out practicing, and he was practicing. I I, I think he's right-handed. I'm not sure, but he, he was practicing his weak hand, and he had missed a bunch of goals with that weak hand, and they said, why is he doing that, you know? And he turned around and said, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to fail in front of the whole world because of just what Chris said. There's so much information in and how I can get better, you know, because of it. You know, and I think a lot of things too, when I work with athletes, mental fatigue is something that's really real. And that can be a real struggle for a lot of athletes. And when you're in the process of only thing, only thinking about, instead of intrinsic, extrinsic, you know, thinking about the goal or the trophy or the ribbon or whatever, I noticed that when athletes struggle with mental fatigue, that's because their eye is on that outside source instead of where Chris is so great at is and is going inside, and that's where the growth is but this mental fatigue you know and and some people it, it can be depression it can be a lot of different things and athletes really that's a struggle because they have to learn to deal with this failure right and if you don't learn how to deal with it well you be it becomes a real mental struggle and that's one thing you know that back to that autotelic when when an athlete just engages, you know, and when he engages, that's the goal. That's where he's happiest. And you can tell in Chris's voice and the way he talks about it. um, That's his goal. And that's why he's so good. You know, and he's not, he's a young man compared to me, but you know, in the track and field, how many other athletes are your age, Chris?
1: You know, that's that's a good point. It's very few. And I don't know if we touched on that or alluded to that, but I, I am definitely on the oldest end of the spectrum for decathletes, professional track and field athletes in general. How old are you? I'm 35, 35. I'll be 36 next year for the Olympics. And yeah, there just aren't too many. Um, track and field athletes competing at my age. There, there are, a, I mean, there are a few notables right now that are um, really successful. Like for example, Aries Merritt, he's the world record holder in the 110 meter high hurdles. Uh, he's my same age. We were actually in the same class together at the university of Tennessee, uh, but he's 35 going to be 36 next year. And, and Justin Gatlin uh, world-class sprinter I mean he I think he's 38 I could be wrong about that but he's older than Aries and I am, for sure he was a Tennessee alum as well actually
0: I'm glad that we kind of segued into this because I, w- I wanted to ask like more about what happened after that 2012 Olympic trials like when you retired and essentially I guess went back to go be a normal person and <laughs> not do the, uh, I guess the Olympic dream anymore. I don't know if I'm saying that right or yeah. properly, but, um, what happened during that time period and where was kind of the mind shift of like, okay, I'm going to go for it again.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's to me, that's really like the meat of the story. Cause that, that was my, that was essentially my transformation period. Um, uh, but you, you said it, just perfectly. I mean, except that I wasn't going back to being a normal, non athletic person. I, I was experiencing it for the very first time. You know, I like I said, I I was a sports kid since I was three years old. And so that was really the center of my identity for a long time.
0: Yeah. Well, and sorry to cut you off, but No opportunity cost too, I'm, I'm assuming is a big thing. Like we've talked about it here on the podcast before in some previous episodes, but when you say yes to something, you're also saying no to other things. And if you were saying yes to athleticism and being in the Olympics, that's a huge commitment. And there are probably a bunch of other things you were saying no to. So this period, I'm assuming you were exper- experimenting with some of those and making them yeses.
1: (laughs) Exactly right. You're exactly right. One of the most amazing things that happened after I retired was I I realized like very suddenly as the rest of the world came rushing into me that I was interested in all kinds of other things that I had no idea. Like I didn't know I had so many interests when I stopped being a decathlete and started trying all, all kinds of new things. So, yeah, it was, it was an amazing time, like, in that respect. And it was also a difficult time because I was trying to reassemble my identity. I mean, that's just how it was. I, I laid to rest this huge part of me. And so I, I had to, to fill in that, that void with something. Um, it took a few years to do that. So for a few years, it was, it was hard for me. It's not that I was totally down and out. I just... You know, in 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 my private life, I was struggling to understand who I was and and how I fit into the world. But I I will tell you a a quick story about what ultimately got me started down the path that led me back into athletics, Um, because it's it's quite unusual. I was I was at a wedding with a with a group of friends of mine, and one evening as we were walking home from the venue. Going back to our, our Airbnb, one of my friends makes a comment about the way that I walked. Now I've been hearing comments about the way that I walked since I was a little kid. People have always seen something peculiar in my gait. But for some reason, at the age of 30, you know, three years into retirement, my friend makes a comment about the way that I walked, and I couldn't get it out of my head. I went home after that wedding, and I I'd had had a long history of taking a walk in the, in the evening after work, just to clear my head. And I found that when I was going on these walks, I couldn't get this question out of my head. Like, what are people seeing in the way that I walk that I can't feel? Because for as long as I can remember, I, walking just felt as normal as could be. There was nothing unusual about it. So at the age of 30, I'm walking around my neighborhood every night, just deeply examining the way that I move and the way that I walk. And specifically what was happening was I was walking around and I was sinking all of my awareness into the inner sensations of my body, trying to feel which muscles were working, which muscles weren't working, what sequence my body moved in, what the patterns were, what the asymmetries were. And this this continued for a long time. And once I started on it, um, it just kind of snowballed. And and I got more interested and more interested in this. And I finally got to the point where I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of maybe what was peculiar about my gait, but also what was inefficient about my movements in general. So, So the logical progression was just to try to, once I understood what was going on, try to change my body in some way, change what was working or what the pattern was by making these very very subtle but precise adjustments in my body. So again, I, it's just what what ultimately happened was I I started exploring the the inner landscape of my body and found that it was just this fascinating world trying to feel and understand the way that I moved. So again, this continued it snowballed for a while and then I had one particular experience that really solidified this for me and It was really a point of no return. So less than a year after I started investigating the way that I moved, it was probably about nine months later, I've come to the conclusion that my left hip is doing a lot more work than my right hip when I walk. So with each step, my left is pulling more weight than the right. I can tell, I can feel it. And so, you know, I try with all of my might and all of my will to activate Engage my right hip so that it's working equally with my left, but I just can't do it for whatever reason. I just don't quite have the bodily control to make it happen, and so I'm getting frustrated. This was a challenge for me, uh, but a challenge I enjoy. So I I don't know where I came up with this honestly, but I I thought to myself, well, if I can't make this change happen on my own, well, I'm just going to ask my body to make the change that I want and see if it'll do it on its own. And so I'm walking along, I'm walking down the sidewalk. I can remember it clear as day. And I said out loud, speaking directly to my physicality, I said, I want my right hip to work equally as my left when I walk. And instantly and spontaneously, I felt this array of contractions in my right hip going up the right side of my back into my right trapezoid. And my right hip engaged in a way that I couldn't do on my own and so this, this was this was pretty astounding for me i was i was shocked it was kind of eerie almost it was like i had somehow communicated with this intelligence <laughs> that i hadn't really acknowledged or appreciated before and it spoke back to me it responded and it was it was just a very profound moment for me and so as as you could imagine that that, really, that turns it from a hobby to an obsession. And from that point forward, things just kept escalating and escalating. And I got to the point where I realized that I, I had transformed into a far better athlete than I'd ever been in the past. And when you combine that, that sort of command over your physicality with the more psychological, emotional realizations that I had had about you know, where my mindset was off when I was younger and put these things together. And I just, I just thought I, I've come across something really special. And it would be, it would be a shame not to take the opportunity to put these things into action and really demonstrate how this thing could be done better. And secondly, it was just the funnest thing that I could possibly imagine doing. Um, so it was like a combination of fun and meaning that has ultimately led me back into being a Catholic.
0: Awesome. So you're going to approach this a little bit older, but you're like, you're coming to the table with a whole new kind of drive, a whole new set of tools in your backpack, so to speak, uh, that's going to make it even better.
1: I, absolutely. I mean, it's like, I. it's not really a remake. It's a total overhaul. So yes, I, I am older. I'm beyond my physiological peak, but I just have so many other assets that... I really feel like I can best my previous self um, on the track by a significant margin.
2: You know, I think he's, you, you can tell why he's so good. I mean, just listen to him talk, right? You you can see he's not the typical athlete. That's, that's not a, a typical athlete. Doesn't think like Chris, you know? And so, but, you know, I think one of the things that one of his strengths can really be is, is taking this mental power and turning it into physical power his age is not, you know. Of course, age is a little bit, but what he's learned about his body, I mean that that is can be a gift that nobody else on the field has, you know. And it's all because of his age, you know. That kind of stuff. And you look at this, um, you know. He, he talks about this coordination and this kind of a, a liquid coordination where it just, you know, kind of flows and. Within you know my thirty thirty years of experience, I coached on a you know college level and a high school level men's basketball, but then I started doing this about five years ago on the mental side and I've developed a framework of of how to you know train in certain ways and you can tell that Chris is very cerebral in the way he approaches his sport it's not it's more now um more about being that cerebral athlete instead of just brute strength you know i think maybe and i remember chris us talking about this many times when he was younger he would just it's like i just got to train harder that's that was his whole at outlook it's like okay if i've done 8 hours i'm going to do 10 that's where you get to a point where that mental fatigue and then if you're mentally fatigued your body is shot you know it just is and so He's looking at it in such a different way, you know, and we've talked about his heart intelligence and how important your heart and your brain communication is as an athlete. And when that's incoherent, so when your heart and brain are working together, that's where the gift is at. That's where he can really soar you know, and fly, and you can see the javelin, you know, you can see all kinds of crazy things, you know, him jumping seven feet, there's a whole bunch of different things that I always, and Chris kind of looks like, you know, he's a really, you know, I'm an older dude, but he, he, I kind of look like uh, that Disney movie Tarzan, you know, and they take Tarzan and put him on the track and field as a decathlete. And I kind of, <laughs> Chris is about that six foot five. He's, he's that good looking, you know, that guy that will go out and really kill it. But the greatest thing about him is the way he thinks about his sport. The way mo, I'm, I, I've am i worked with, I figured it up the other day, I've worked with over 3000 athletes in the last five years. And he by far is the most cerebral athlete that I've worked with. Everybody else and their parents and their coaches, a lot of coaches just think you got to go do more reps. You know, you got to, and, and he'll sit, I I'm writing a book right now and I have in my book, I have a, a, a chapter called butt power and bleeding from your forehead. And that whole chapter talks about, this visualization and meditation. Whereas in our society, I just read a study the other day that said the average person looks at their phone 95 times a day. If you, if you're in the age of 18 to 24, you're doubling that. And so you're looking at your phone. If you're 18 to 24, like once every three and a half, four minutes, And so this distraction that we have in our society with phones and everything going on, Chris is so great about not getting that. He has a talent of letting those distractions go and, you know, bleeding from his forehead, really sitting and learning how to meditate and visualize and bringing his sport to him in a way that very few athletes have.
1: Just real quick, that that was one of the things that Jeff really got me started on was visualization. And it's something that I known about and kind of dabbled in since I was very young. I mean, probably my freshman year of college, but Jeff and I's work together really, really showed me how powerful it is to like feel and experience a future that you want to realize.
2: When you know, we I was just in front of a division one head football coach talking to him. And I said, you know, talking to him a little bit saying, you know, kind of what's your mental game plan? How are you going to approach the season different season, obviously, you know, with, with, you know, COVID and all that stuff. He gives me the pat answers about visualization. Well, we're going to visualize, we're going to do this, you know, we're going to, you know, it's all the pat answers that all coaches know. And so to kind of prove my point, I just tried to put him on the spot a little bit and said, okay, I'm, I'm your quarterback. Teach me how to visualize. And then I just shut up. I didn't say a word. And we had a very awkward silence for probably felt like five minutes, <laughs> but it was probably a minute and a half, you know, and he finally just came clean and he goes, well, I don't, I I don't really know how to, you know? And so one of the things that I teach all my athletes is obviously Chris talked about the senses and stuff like that, but also developing, getting yourself into an alpha state, an alpha brainwave state, if you can do that, it opens your subconscious mind, really great things happen. And you actually start performing like your visualization. You know, And so that's a really great thing. And there's just so much science behind it now. If you're not doing it, you're going to lose to the person who is.
1: Jeff is that is that what we call neurofeedback is, is so trying, training yeah, like brain waves
2: right getting into that brain so alpha brain waves is kind of it's like that uh, relaxed awareness maybe is a good way to you know kind of talk about it but the more like you've had those moments where you just were like i can fly you know it's like just let me at it and that's training those different. See, and most athletes don't do that. Most coaches don't have athletes do that. They just think it's more reps, get stronger, get, you know, they do a little of the mental stuff. But if you could train your athletes to get into this alpha state, you know, there's science behind it. It says you learn faster, you grow your talent faster. Everything you do is better if you can, because we're usually in this high beta wave. That's where most Of our society lives their life is in this high beta where it's stress they got so many things going on but if you can slow her down just a little bit and get in that alpha brainwave that that kind of that's where like the magic happens you know that's where uh, flow state you know that total absorption where time disappears that liquid coordination all that stuff happens and that's where all that greatness happens
0: So there you have it. Part one of my interview with Chris Helwick and Jeff Meyer. They're sharing a bunch of incredible stories and insights. And in part two, we'll get more into the different strategies and tactics that we can start using in our own lives today. So stay tuned for that episode. Thank you very much, guys, for listening Uh, Of course, we'd all love to connect with you. You can find any of the links at parkerkane.co and chrishelwick.com. If you enjoyed this episode or got value from the episode, please share it with a friend and leave, of course, an upbeat review. That's always much appreciated. You guys are the best. I'll see you next week.